Today's reading is from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, once called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to who, to who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, and then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You may be seated. Uh, as you can see, we are starting to celebrate Christmas uh, here. We got the decorations uh, up, uh, just helping to, to get us focused in around the, the specialness of this time of year. I want to give a, a special thank you to uh, Quinn Enquist and uh, Christian Rockwell, who are up on a very high uh, machine yesterday, putting these things up, taking the time to do that. So uh, thank you guys for doing that and for not falling. That meant a lot to us. Um, so... You know, um, we're in the book of Ephesians for today, and then next week we do a, a two-week special Advent series that I'm going to introduce. Um, but even as we're in the book of Ephesians today, it's remarkable to me how what we're looking at this morning ties really directly to what we celebrate this time of year in the birth of Jesus Christ. In fact, I want to go to this first. Um, does anybody know what the word Noel means? Now, I always thought it was cute when we would sing Noel this time of year because my oldest daughter is named Elle. And so when she was a little kid, we would sing Noel, Noel, you know, saying, you know, no, don't do that. But, but like, do you know what Noel means? It actually comes from a Latin word that was a translation of a Hebrew word in Ecclesiastes. It was pointing forward to the birth of Jesus. Anyway, the word simply means to be born. To be born. And, and so what are we doing this year? We're proclaiming the birth. We're proclaiming the birth of Jesus Christ. But we're not just, and we can never just, this time of year, proclaim the birth of Jesus Christ, right? Because he was sent. He was born. As Pastor Tony just talked to the children so that there would be what? Peace on earth. And in our text this morning, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is going to extrapolate for us in great detail the significance of Jesus Christ not just being born, but as we saw last week, what his blood has purchased for mankind. So I invite you to open up in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. 
Ephesians chapter 2. We looked last week at the first part of the verses 11 through 18, and, and today we're going to kind of summarize those verses and then jump into the rest of the text. So, so last week, we saw that God, through the Apostle Paul, was speaking to the church in Ephesus, and he was specifically speaking to a group of believers in Ephesus who were the Gentiles, that was the non-Jews who made up the church there in Ephesus. And he had a special message to give to them. He wanted to talk specifically to them about the significance of Christ's coming, his living and his dying for them. And And if you remember last week when we were going through this text, especially in the first verses, Paul was going out of his way to make this point. Before the coming of Jesus Christ, we were as far off as Gentiles as anyone could be. We were as far off from God as Gentiles as anyone could be. If you were a non-Jew before the coming of Jesus Christ, you didn't have knowledge of the promised Messiah. If you were a non-Jew before the coming of Jesus Christ, you did not identify and recognize God as your king over you. If you were a non-Jew before the coming of Christ, you were cut off from the the covenant promises and the blessings of of God being with you if you walked in obedience because you were not considered part of the people of God. Now, let me be clear on something. Not everyone who was a Jew before the coming of Jesus Christ was a true follower of God. The scriptures are clear on that. Just because you were a Jew doesn't mean that, that you had a relationship with God. There were many who went through the motions as the Israelites, as the Jewish people, who were not considered faithful to the Lord. But Paul says, man, listen, if you were a non-Jew before Jesus Christ came, you were, look at this, verse 12, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That is what describes all of us apart from Jesus Christ. But then he went on to say in the text that through the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ by his blood, one new people of God was formed. One new people of God was created, the church. Paul makes it abundantly clear as he had done even earlier in chapter two, that although you could be far off from God, cut off from him without hope in the world, Jesus Christ's coming, his birth, his life, and his death has done something, done something remarkable. It not only saves those who are far off, and what we said last week is, listen, if this is true, and it is, it does not matter how deep and how far and how fallen you are from God, through the blood of Jesus Christ, you can be saved and you can be redeemed. But even more spectacularly than that is not only can he take those who are far off and bring them near, but he can make them completely new. And what Paul says here in the text is this. He has created in Christ one new man. He takes those, the Jews and the Gentiles, two people who are not only separated from one another, but who had been separated from God. And he says, I come and I bring you together and I make you one new man. And now through Jesus Christ, there's this new thing of which you and I are now a part called the church. Notice he doesn't say that Gentiles become Jews. And notice that he doesn't say that Jews become Gentiles. In the text, look here right at it, because I want us to see this. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one. Now, what does he mean by one? It says a little bit further in verse 15, he has created in himself one new man in place of of the two. So Gentiles don't become Jews. Jews don't become Gentiles. We become together something completely other. 
One of the early church fathers, John Chrysotom, said this. He said, it is as though God took metal of gold and metal of lead and out came something completely new. Not a lead and gold mixture, but something completely different. I mean, this is the transforming work. So now all people come to God, not through the covenant promises and not through the sacrificial system. No, we come to God, we're reconciled to him through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so this is what we saw last week. And so Paul's speaking to the Gentiles. He wants them to know this remarkable change of their nature and that this inclusion into this thing called the church. But it's one thing for us to understand that now the two have become one new man, but, but like, what does that really mean? What, is that, what does that do to us? I wanna do a silent survey, so you're not gonna shout this out, because to get into our next portion here, I wanna ask a question of you. Just answer this quietly. If, if I were to ask you the question, what does being a Christian make you? What does believing in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, what have you now become? What are you because of Jesus Christ saving and redeeming you? Don't answer out loud, but, but what's the first thing that comes to your mind? What are you now? I, I think that some people would come and you'd say, well, I'm forgiven. I'm a saint. I'm made holy. I'm a new creation. But now look at what Paul says. Look at what Paul wants us to see. It starts in verse 19. Look at what comes next in the text. All right, so then, he starts with, remember that so then is based upon the fact that the two have become one new man. You've been reconciled through the blood of Jesus Christ. Jews and Gentiles are now the same in Jesus Christ. There's not two distinct people of God. There's one distinct people of God. It's called the church. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. Now, that should make sense because he's just reaffirming what he said before. We were far off. We were without hope. And he's like, so then, based upon what I've said, you're no longer strangers and aliens. And then these are two phrases that the people at that time would have understand. To be a stranger meant that you were a foreigner in the city with no guaranteed civil rights or privileges. That's what that Greek word would mean. To say that you're a stranger means you have no civil rights or privileges. You're a, a foreigner in the city. To be an alien is to be someone from outer space. No, I'm kidding. That's not what he's talking about. To be an alien is to be an individual who may have been born and lived in the city for generations, but are not citizens, and they don't have full access to legal privileges and protections. So, so he says, so you're no longer just those who don't live in the city who are just visiting, and you're no longer aliens, people who are just a part of the city but don't have access to none of the privileges. He says, so then, you're no longer this, but then who are we? The first thing he says, but you are fellow citizens with the what? Saints. Who are you? What does the work of Jesus Christ do for you? What does it make you? Paul writing to Jews and Gentiles says, the first thing that it makes you is fellow citizens with the saints. We are citizens together of God's kingdom. Having just said that we're no longer strangers and aliens, he's pointing to the truth that we're no longer outside of God's kingdom but we have entered into his kingdom. We don't just live in this city, we're actually citizens. Now, citizenship, and the language Paul uses here, church, the people he was writing to would have recognized the significance and the radicalness of being called citizens of God's kingdom. Because in Paul's day, citizenship was both a rare and a prized thing. 
It was a rare and a prized thing. Let me explain. We talked earlier that most scholars estimate the population of the city of Ephesus, where he was writing this letter to, had anywhere between 200,000 to a quarter million citizen, or I should say people living in the city at that time. So they had about a quarter million inhabitants when Paul wrote this letter. What we know from history and archeological evidence, there was an inscription that was found a century after Paul wrote this. And at that time, a century after Paul, the city of Ephesus was even larger. But the inscription talks about a man named uh, Aurelius Baranus, who lived in the city and he held a festival, and this is what it says in it. He held a festival for the city leaders and it's, listen carefully, 1,040 citizens. So, quarter million people living in the city, how many were citizens? 1,040. Citizenship was a rare thing. It was something that was prized. In fact, half of the people living in Ephesus were most likely considered in some form slaves. So when Paul says, check this out, guys, you who are far off and brought near, you've been made citizens of God's kingdom, they would have said, oh, that's special. That's really special. Because with that citizenship came, and this is why it was so prized, a number of things. First, it meant protection. So if you're taking notes, the first thing to be a citizen meant you had protection. To be a citizen meant you came under the guard and the protection of the king. And so if you were a citizen of the king's kingdom, the king now was responsible for your protection from your enemies. And so to be a citizen of God's kingdom means that God is now your protector. He is your protector. And depending upon the strength of your king, that indicates how much protection you will have from your enemies. Church, we have God as our protector. He holds us. He guards us. He watches over us. As Jesus said, when you are given to me, no one can snatch you from my hand. There is no enemy in this world. Well, neither height nor depth nor things in heaven nor things below can separate us from the what? The love of God, Romans says. Why can we believe that promise? Because our protector is stronger than all other forces. So we have the protection, and that's only because we're citizens. But it's not just protection from our enemies. It's protection from injustice. You see, Paul knew the importance of citizenship. In fact, he claimed it many times during his life. If you are a citizen of a kingdom, unlike a stranger or an alien, that meant that you were protected you were protected in such a way that if, if somebody made charges against you, there was a formal process, a formal trial that you had to go through because your citizenship demanded justice for you. Just look at Acts 25 later when Paul invokes his citizenship as a Roman citizen when he appeals to Caesar when he's been treated wrongly. We have protection from our enemies, protection from 
injustice. God says, I'm your king, you will receive justice. And fortunately for us, all of our crimes, all of our penalties have been laid upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so when he looks at us, he says, you have received all that you deserve because I poured out all my wrath on Jesus already. But not only is there protection, there's privilege when you're a citizen. There's privilege when we're a citizen. In Paul's day, if you were a citizen of Rome, you could travel freely within the empire. You could set up a business. You could hold government positions. To be a citizen was to recognize you were, in fact, in a different class. Protection, privileges. Brothers and sisters, think about this. To be a citizen of God's kingdom. Think about the privileges that we have. We can come before our king. We can plead our case to him. We know that our inheritance in him is absolutely secure. There's this protection. There's this privilege that comes to us. We're no longer far off. We've been brought near. We're guarded by God. These are the privileges that come to us. But then there's one aspect of citizenship that I know Paul has in mind because of what he will say later. Citizenship also means allegiance, does it not? We have this thing in America, or at least maybe it's the Canadians, I can't remember. When dual citizenship, there's a couple of countries that allow dual citizenship. You can be a citizen of America, citizen of Ireland and America, citizen of America and Canada, dual citizenship. No dual citizenship in God's kingdom. <laughs> Uh, dual citizenship was, was really a, a foreign concept for much of history. The allegiance is what was demanded. To be a citizen of a, a country required submission to the authorities and to the laws of the land. You submitted yourself to the king. You said, if I'm a citizen here, I look to the king and I follow him and I follow his ways. If we are citizens of God's kingdom, we forsake allegiances to the kingdom of darkness. That's what he said earlier in chapter two. You've been brought out of the domain of darkness. You've been brought into to God's kingdom. And so, so your allegiance is first and foremost only to him. And so Paul is saying, listen, you've been made citizens of God's kingdom. You have new allegiances. Praise the Lord for that. We're not bound to the ways of this world. We're not bound to following Satan and his ways. Our allegiance is to God. There was a missionary in Laos that before the, the, both Laos and Vietnam were ultimately inhabited and colonized, but before that, before the, the boundaries were, were set between Laos and Vietnam, they did this really interesting thing. I, I, I found this, this missionary was saying, you know how they determined, because the borders of Laos and Vietnam were, were so close, ultimately who followed what not just, well, country at that time, but, but what leader, that the, the missionary said this. He said, he said, those who ate short grain rice, built their houses on stilts, and decorated them with Indian-style serpents were considered um, from Laos. On the other hand, those who ate long grain rice, built their houses on the ground, and decorated them with Chinese-style dragons were considered Vietnamese. The exact location of a person's home was not what determined his or her nationality. Instead, each person belonged to the kingdom whose culture values he or she exhibited. And I think that's so true of us as citizens of God's kingdom. Paul's going to go on to say this. He's going to write to the Philippian church. He's going to say, but our citizenship in, is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Church, our citizenship is in heaven. Our life, our values, the things that we do are to model our citizenship that comes to us from heaven. We live in the United States of America, but our allegiance forever and always is to our God, his laws, his ways, because we're citizens of his kingdom. In fact, the author of Hebrews would write this in Hebrews 13, 14, for here, here on earth, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Do you seek the city that is to come? To have allegiance to Jesus Christ as your king, that means that your allegiance and and what you do is that you look forward to, to his coming. You don't plant and root yourself so much here that the values and the systems of this world define you, but instead the value and the system of Christ. And so what you see there in your notes is I wrote this, citizens follow the way of the king. And who is our king? It is Jesus, amen? This is who we follow because our allegiance is to him. So who are we? Paul says, what does Jesus do through his blood? Well, he purchases a people, he makes them one new people, but he makes you and I citizens of the kingdom of God. That is who you are. But he goes on from there. He has more to say. But before he does it, did you see how he says you are fellow citizens with the saints? Why does he say that? You are fellow citizens with the saints. Why doesn't he just call us, well, you are citizens of God's kingdom? He says you are fellow citizens with the saints. What he's trying to picture for us is that you and I down through the ages, we are part of God's people throughout the ages. All the saints who have come before us, all who have been redeemed and reconciled either by looking forward to the coming Messiah or redeemed and reconciled by looking back to Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. He says, we are fellow citizens with all the saints, which means once again, that we should look at one another and call each other what? Saints, holy ones. You are a holy one. So when the song says, oh, come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant, you might look at yourself and say, I haven't been faithful this week. (laughs) Maybe there's things I haven't, guess what? In Jesus Christ, you are faithful. You are a holy one with all who have gone before. You know that I like ice hockey. It's one of the things that we've grown up playing. And, And this... The National Hockey League has a trophy. I've probably shown you this trophy before. Anybody know the name of the National Hockey League's trophy at the end of the year? The Stanley Cup. Very good. Yeah, I should be throwing out candy if I'm Tony, right? You'd be paying more attention. <laughs> you get a smarty and you get it. There's something unique about the Stanley Cup that they do. If you can look at this picture, I love that we got the big screen. Engraved on the Stanley Cup are the names of the people who were part of the previous championship teams. And so when you win the Stanley Cup, your name is engraved forever on this trophy. And so when a new team wins the cup and they hold that trophy in their hands, they are included with all of the champions who have what? Gone before. And you can't have your name taken off of the cup once it's there, it's, it's there. And so you can look and you can see. And then one day your name gets put on the cup and so then the next team who sees it says, that man was once a champion. Church, we are fellow citizens with the saints before and all who will come after. But he doesn't just end there. Look at what he says next. He goes and he does something. So you are fellow citizens, no longer strangers and aliens, and members of the what? Household of God. 
Who are you because of Jesus Christ as the new people of God? You are citizens of his kingdom and we are all members of God's family. Paul's metaphor of the church is God's new community. It moves from something far more personal than citizenship to something very personal and relational, a family. This idea has already come up in the letter. We've talked about what Jesus Christ done. God the Father has adopted us into his family. The predominant way that our relationship church within the Bible is described, listen to me, the predominant way is that we are sons and daughters of God and we are brothers and sisters of one another. If our citizenship, it highlights our protection and our privilege, then here, him calling us family is intended to highlight three things, our relationship, our resources, and our responsibility. Let me break each one of these things down. First, when he calls his family, he's saying, do you know the relationship that you have with God? Do you know the relationship? As citizens of God's kingdom, as citizens of any kingdom, you could live in the same country as your king. But if you are family with somebody, you live in the same what? Home with them. Paul's, Paul's doing something here. He, he, he's doing this movement where he says, listen, you, you can live in the same country as your king, but never see him. I've, I've lived 42 years here in America, and I've never once seen in person the president of the United States. You can go your whole life and never see the king or the president of your country. But God, he's not just our king, he's our father. Adopted, verse Five of chapter one says, as his children. Verse 18 is going to say here in chapter two that we have access to him. In 1 Timothy 3.15, it says we are members of God's household. Being called members of God's family, though, listen to me, church, is not a metaphor. We are not like family. God is not like a father to you, is he? See, that's what a metaphor is, right? God is like a dad. No, no, God is not like a dad. He's not like a father. He is your father. That's a huge distinction. Huge distinction. He's not like a father to you. He actually is your father. And he's not just any father. He is the perfect, perfect faithful father. There's no father on earth, no matter how good, no matter how gracious, that can compare with God the Father. He is the perfect father to us. And by the way, if he is our father, then that makes you and I not like brothers and sisters. It makes us what? Actual brothers and sisters in the Lord. It always breaks my heart when I say what I'm about to say. So this has both a negative connotation and a positive one. There are some family members, potentially, that you or I might have of which we will not spend eternity with. Biological family members that you and I might have that we might not spend eternity with. But your brother and sister in the Lord, they will be your forever family. <laughs> They're forever family. You're not like a brother or sister to me. You are my brother and sister. It's a conceptual change that has to take place within our, within our minds. You can't just you know, push them off you have to say, this is my brother or sister. I better start learning how to like them now because we're going to spend all eternity with one another. You're like, heaven's a big place. Get out, don't go there, you know. He's going to go over here. But there's something else that that means. It's to have that relationship. 
It means that we have resources available to us. To, to have God as your father means that there's a resource there. I think this is what Paul is saying. I, I, I tried to figure out if resource was the right word, but listen, the truth is, if God is the king and you're citizens of his kingdom, but he's also your father, it means that you, as a son or daughter of the king, have the resources of the king. And, and this is exactly what God says. This, this, is, this is what that Paul points out. He's like, we have an inheritance that, that comes to us, as we saw in chapter 1. We have a father who, because he owns everything and he has unlimited resources, says, come and ask of me anything that you will. Now, as a father, he will determine whether or not you should receive those things. But he says, my resources are unlimited, and you're my children. And so when Paul says, you're my, you're my family, you've been brought into God's family, he wants you to know this. Something that happened uh, just uh, this past year was that a young woman by the name of Naomi Biden, who just happens to be the granddaughter of Joe Biden, our president, she moved into the White House. Now, I want you to show a picture. I'm just curious. Has anybody here ever spent a night in the White House? This would be, all right, I was just curious. This would be, um, she was able to move into the White House because she and her fiance were going to eventually, well, their, their rent was up and they had a few months before they were going to get married and they were looking for a place to live. So, so listen, if your rent is up and, and you need to lease a place for a few months, I don't know anybody in this room who could call up Joe Biden and say, hey, do you got a couple rooms in the White House? I mean, it's the people's house. So can I, can I just, you know, Lincoln bedroom, is it open, you know, between now and like VRBO? Can we Airbnb this thing? We can't do that, right? But Naomi Biden could, why? Because her grandfather is the president. I don't have that kind of access. You don't have that kind of access. Well, to the president, but to the God and maker of heaven and earth, yeah, we do. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am there, you may be what? Also, why is he making a home for you? Because you're his child. And so you have unlimited resources. But with that though, listen, there's no mistake to be part of God's family means that there's responsibility. You, you, can't, you can't look past this any other way. There's responsibility when you're a part of the family. Just as citizenship means that you have allegiance, so too being a part of the family means responsibility. In the ancient world, up until really the modern era, this was absolutely understood, that to be a part of a family meant that you had a part to play. There was responsibility in the family. That there was this honor that was to be shown to ultimately the parents, but that to one another, there was a way that we were in to interact. In fact, Paul is going to highlight this later. Look at what he says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. This verse is going to come back over and over again. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. As beloved children, we are to be imitators of God. God is our Father. He has loved us. And so, as our Father, we are to do what? Imitate Him. That's responsibility. That's, that's, a, that's a proper response to being a part of God's family. In Ephesians 5, 8, just look at a few verses down. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of what? Light, responsibility, response. You're children of light now, so walk in the light. You can't just say, you know what? Jesus Christ saves me and he redeems me and so I can live my own way. No, you're part of God's family. 
which means you're righteous, which means you're holy, which means you're to walk in a certain way. In fact, when he wrote to the church in Ephesus through Timothy, in 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 2, he said this, look at how we're supposed to engage one another. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. We're part of God's family. Do you think about what it means to have God as your father and the beautiful resources that are available to you, the relationship that you now have, but you also understand the call to the responsibility? I I can't say that this is true of this church, and I really haven't seen this, but maybe you've seen this elsewhere. What this means for us is that, like my 20 years of ministry here at this church, this hasn't been something I've seen all that often, but but I have seen it in the church, that a lot of people think of the church not as a family, and, and definitely not as, as a kingdom in which we, we dwell and we have allegiance and responsibility, but we think of a church sometimes as a hotel. It's a place that we check into and we check out of whenever we want. We get out of it what we feel like we need in the moment, a place that we just visit, as one person says, and sometimes a place that we, that we tip if all goes well. <laughs> I don't think that that in any way, shape, or form represents what Jesus Christ has done with his blood in making us his family. We gotta take seriously this call. We are family. Don't start singing the song, okay? (laughs) I know your mind's whether you're laughing, because you know, right? But we are, and all that comes with it. There's a preciousness that's here. But then one final thing. It's not just that we have a responsibility to one another as family, but Paul goes in and he says something. Look at verse 20. He says, we're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built up together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Up till now, he said, we're citizens of God's kingdom, Up till now, he said, we're family members, but now he calls us something. He says, we are stones in God's holy temple. Like out of all of the things and the imagery that he has communicated to us, I I get the idea of citizenship. Now I understand family and the significance of that, but calling me a stone, you know, somebody might have called you dumb as a rock. That's not what he's saying here, okay? (laughs) That's not what he's saying here. This final picture, it might seem cold, Stone is cold. It might seem distant. But, but for the people who heard this, now I'm, I hope after when I'm done saying it for us, it will mean the same for us. As Paul was dictating this letter, there stood, as you see on the screen, this magnificent marble temple to Artemis in Ephesus, one of the seven wonders of the world. This temple was huge. And every time that the people walked past this temple, they would, they would see its majesty and its glory. This was the place where, where the goddess was said to dwell and the place where you would need to go to to be able to engage with her and to receive from her what you wanted. Now, beyond this temple, the Jews knew of another temple that existed at that time in Jerusalem 
built by Herod the Great, the place where, for the Jewish people, God's Shekinah glory was said to dwell. So whether you were a Gentile or a Jew, the idea of a temple would have quickly come into your mind. But when he says, now we are the temple of God, we're we're stones in his holy temple, like, what is Paul talking about? Well, think about what it means as far as our relationship with God. He's saying here that, that there's a new temple And it's not to the goddess Artemis, and it's not the temple in Jerusalem. Those temples, God doesn't dwell there anymore. He's saying that that God dwells with us, and we are actually part of his temple. Notice how Paul moves from the concept of God as king to the God as father to the God, well, he's being more intimate with us. If we are God's temple, a king lives in the country of his people, but he lives in the palace. A father lives under the same roof with his children, but a temple church, but a temple. The people understood that God actually indwelt the temple. The proximity that Paul is pointing us to is a king lives in his palace. He lives far off, but your citizen's there. A father lives in a home in and amongst his children. But if you are the temple, then God actually indwells you. Paul here is pointing to our intimacy with God. He says, do you know how intimate your relationship is with God? You are his temple together, built up. The church is the place. Its people is the place where God Resides In 1 Peter 2, 5, he says this, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. When he wrote to the church in Corinth, he said this, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? He's not just with you, he's in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So you and I are there for what? Holy. This is what Paul wants us to see. Church, we cannot consider God as something who is out there and distant from us. I often will say emotionally, intellectually, based upon our feelings, God can feel distant from you. Have you ever had those seasons? I've had those seasons. God, you feel distant. But church, based upon what Paul is saying here, is God ever distant from you? He's never far away. He indwells his people. We are the the living stones of his temple. And here's why this intimacy with God matters. If you do not know this, there will be times in your life when you think you are alone but you're never alone. If you do not know this, there will be times in your life where you believe that you can be defeated and that sin has victory over you, but if Christ indwells you, you are never defeated. Do not ever look in the mirror, as I said, and believe that that sin has a power over me anymore because you are a place where God dwells. If this is true, and it is, you are to consider yourself always holy. All the awe and all the wonder 
of what it meant for God to dwell in his temple and never to be able to approach him in the Old Testament, all of that awe and that wonder means it applies to you and me. The person sitting next to you, if they are in Jesus Christ, is someone in whom the Spirit of God dwells. Don't touch them. <laughs> no, embrace them. Embrace them as holy. Embrace them as blameless because that's who you are as well. But it's not just intimacy with God that Paul gets at here. It's finally this. It's intimacy with other believers. It's intimacy with other believers. Going back to this idea of Paul's progression here. Consider, if we're citizens of the same kingdom, it doesn't mean that we live together. In fact, if you live in Valley Center and you're a quote-unquote citizen of Valley Center, you probably live at least two acres away from your neighbor, right? Unless you're part of our new blessed neighbors who live really close to each other, right, in circle, park circle. But still, nonetheless, you don't live under the same roof necessarily. If you're citizens of the same kingdom, you can be distant from one another. But, but if you're family, then as brothers and sisters, you live under the same roof. But, but here's where the analogy is crazy. You want to know how intimate our relationship is with one another and we just don't hardly ever get it? Is he says that we are individually stones within a temple. How closely are stones to one another in a temple? Come on now, how close are stones? Can there be any gaps in the stones? They laid these stones on top of one another. They were compressed together. You're not just family and brothers and sisters. You are stones. You are cemented together. This points to significance and necessity. Your relationship with one another in Christ is so intimate that we are being built up together into the household of God. We're being smushed right next to one another. This is where, to me, you cannot, and I'm going to say this with a smile on my face because it's a, it's a profound truth. You cannot call yourself a Christian and not be a part of a local church. And you can say, well, I'm a Christian. I'm a part of the church universal. That's not what the Bible says. Every epistle was written to individual local churches. And Paul and God, through Paul, gave specific instructions to those local churches to say, this is who you are together. The writer here, Paul, and the, and the recipients here in Ephesus, they're not thinking about how they're connected intimately to the believers in Jerusalem, although that could be part of it. They're thinking about how as Jews and Gentiles in Ephesus, although they were once far off, have been brought so near they're as close to one another as stones compressed upon each other, which means we have a necessity for each other, an absolute necessity. And what made us, church, citizens, family member, and these holy stones, he says right there, were built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The apostles and the prophets, they proclaimed the gospel. What has knitted us together is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the gospel of Jesus Christ does not exist unless the cornerstone Jesus Christ exists. But praise to the Lord. Christ has come. We celebrate him at Christmas time. God came down. And because he came down, who you are now in Jesus Christ, citizens, family members, holy stones, 
unto the Lord. May we embrace and know this identity because as we do, it impacts how we live day to day. Saints, I say from God's word through my lips to you, you are loved by God, you are loved by me because we are together one new people to the praise and glory of his name. Amen? Amen. Let's, let's pray. I want you to bow your heads, and I just want the quietness here just to sell for a minute. And as I pray and ask the Lord for his help here in these closing moments, we're going to come to the communion table. But with your heads bowed and eyes closed, we're doing this not out of ritual, but out of the, the desire to have no distractions. How do you see yourself today? First, if you're someone who is far off from God, if you believe that there's distance between you and God, I am going to ask you a question. Have you put your faith and trust in Christ to bring you near? Because it's only through his blood that you can be saved and redeemed. And so if you've been looking to your own works today, I would ask you to put those aside and confess to the Lord, yes, you are a sinner. Yes, you have been unfaithful. But through the blood of Jesus Christ, you will find your forgiveness. And just tell him that. Say, I believe I'm forgiven through the work of your son that you sent. Because I would love nothing more than for today to be the day that you can join with this household, with this kingdom, with this holy temple unto the Lord. Don't be far off anymore. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ that you can be saved. And for others of us today, consider today, is it my citizenship? Is it my membership in the family? Is it the fact that I'm a holy stone? Am I knowing this about myself? Am I embracing this identity or am I believing something else? And so, Lord, help us with these truths. Help us to see ourselves for who we are, to really consider Noel, that for Christ to be born, to live and to die, actually changes everything for us. Not only does it bring us close to you, but what it means to be brought close to you is the privileges, the protection, the resources, the relationship, the responsibilities that we have, the intimacy with you and with others. So, Lord, help us to embrace these things because with your blood, mankind you've bought. And so it is in Christ's name that we pray and we ask this. And all God's people said, amen.